Do you know what separates a failed business exit from a highly profitable one? Do you want to maximize the value of your business? The Business Exit Stories podcast is the solution. Through a collection of stories told by the business intermediaries who facilitate those transactions, you'll receive the key takeaways from successful and, yes, some not-so-successful business exits. Now is the time to begin to position your business for an exit by implementing key strategies designed to maximize your enterprise value and help you achieve an exceptionally profitable exit. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. In today's episode, we have a little bit different type of guest on our podcast today. Tom Hine is a wealth manager. Now, wealth managers are individuals and companies that manage the wealth of perhaps people like yourself after you exit your business and receive the proceeds from a sale. They will manage your wealth. His firm is growing by acquisitions. That means he is acquiring one and sometimes two firms a year as he grows his business. In this episode, you're going to get to sit in the chair of a buyer and get insights into some of the things that a buyer looks at when acquiring another company. These insights, if you are smart, should get you to thinking about how you need to position your business for sale so that buyers get what they need when they begin their due diligence process into acquiring your business. In this episode, Tom shares a story of an acquisition of a firm he acquired where the founder had a long-term strategic vision and how they wanted to exit their business. Because of this vision, the founder turned down a cash buyer that was willing to pay the asking price. While most of the episodes on this podcast place price as an important consideration, but not the only consideration, it is rare, however, to have a cash deal turned down, especially when they're willing to pay the asking price. Now, the interesting thing about this transaction is that the founder was willing to accept a small down payment and carry 80% of the purchase price back as well as an earnout. You'll be fascinated how this turns out for both the buyer and the seller. This story is followed by another story that was a blockbuster deal where Tom's firm could have acquired a billion-dollar company that was over three times the size of his own firm and why it didn't work out. Why it didn't work out won't be what you might expect. Next, Tom shares a story of walking away from a deal that was months in the making and where there was a ton of hard work and due diligence and considerable expense and time invested into this deal to make it happen. Everything pointed to this being a great fit for an acquisition by his company, but there was just one thing that wasn't quite right. While in many situations, this one thing might have been viewed as acceptable and the deal would have moved forward, Tom will share his thoughts on why it wasn't acceptable for him and why some of the best deals are the ones that don't get done. Finally, Tom shares a story about how one of his smallest acquisitions turned out to be one of his best and by far the most profitable. There are some real lessons for any entrepreneur that is looking to sell his business in the future from this interview with Tom and how he views acquiring other companies. Again, this episode is about growth by acquisition, which is not the normal format of most of our guests 
that share their stories on this podcast. However, I can guarantee you that this podcast may turn out to be one of the best episodes because you will get a different perspective than you get in most of our podcast and how a buyer is looking at acquiring a business and what they look for. And this is something every entrepreneur should be aware of when they're selling their business and what they need to do to understand what they can do to meet the buyer's expectations, which often will result in a higher price paid for your business and what you have to do to get that higher price. This is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast. Today we have a kind of an interesting guest with us that has a little bit different orientation than a lot of guests we've had on our podcast here. This is Tom Hines. So I'm going to ask Tom just to introduce himself and talk a little bit about his business, where he's located, and kind of what he does. Tom? Thanks, Marvin. Yeah, I'm a president and founder of Capital Wealth Management in Glastonbury, Connecticut. I recently published a book called The Zen of business acquisitions on Amazon. And we focus on the wealth management space. So those of you that know about asset management and money managers and wealth advisors, that's the space that we focus on. Um, Although our clients are spread throughout the country um, in this day and age uh, with Zoom, everybody can connect with everybody else. All right, Tom, I'm uh, kind of interested to see what kind of transactional stories you can share with our audience here today, because most of our audience is our business owners, and you're coming from a little bit different orientation because you have a specialty niche that you operate in. But I'm sure that some of the same principles that you uh, will share with us today as far as some of the takeaways are going to be universal in nature, as many of them generally are. So, Tom, I'd like to have you kind of jump in and talk a little bit about some of the transactions you've been involved in as you've gone about uh, acquiring businesses and growing your own business as, in wealth management. So, Tom, would you share with us a transaction that had its challenges and how that went? Sure. Um, so, one of the key ones that I like to focus on is Several years ago, I came across an owner um, in the same state, you know, in Connecticut, who wanted to retire and exit out of his business. Uh, he had built a very profitable wealth management business, and uh, by all accounts, our conversations on the phone, you know, led me to believe that this would be a possible good match. And so we had a couple of meetings uh, in person, but uh, soon after the second meeting, there was a key lunch that we had where I brought one of my senior associates and he brought his junior partner. And uh, in the middle of the lunch, the junior partner took a call about some technology fiasco and had to leave the meeting uh, to go help fix things, you know, at the office. And I thought, hmm, this is kind of interesting um, that a firm of that size wouldn't have their own, you know, either full-time IT or certainly somebody on call. You mentioned there, you said junior partner. Was this a, an associate level partner? And what was the motivation for the more senior of the partnership here to be chatting with you? Yeah, the more senior, there was a 20 year difference in the age, and that's often critical, meaning the senior partner who had the majority ownership, um, well over 75%, wanted to exit the business, but the junior partner uh, could not afford to buy him out. That was the big challenge. So they both agreed they wanted to move forward with the transaction. But the senior partner was looking for me to sort of buy the firm and then sort of, you know, knight the junior partner as a partner, even though it was going to be all my capital. And so that was another sticking point was I already had my own team in place. 
So why would I want to necessarily buy another firm where you have another partner if they weren't adding all the value, you know, that you thought they were? And so, yeah, there was the 20 year difference. That was a big part. And the part that this junior partner was really spending more time doing the technology of the firm and not meeting with clients and producing revenue. So their role wasn't as well-defined as I thought it was. So I understand you kind of had your dinner where you got the, the principals together and you were chatting deal terms and getting to know each other and the phone rings. And just clarify for me what happened uh, when the phone rang. Yeah, so the cell phone rings and, and the junior partner, the one that I thought was involved in wealth management, you know, client activities, which we call revenue producing activities day to day, said, um, I've got to head back to the office. Uh, it was a lunch, you know, not a dinner, but they had to head back and fix things. And I thought, here's the most important transaction of their lives at that point that I realized. And he wasn't being rude. He literally had to go back and work on the computers. And at the moment, I didn't say anything, of course, but in my mind, I thought, well, if you're in the middle of discussing selling your, you know, your life's work, or he's the junior partner, wanted to be involved in the new entity, and they didn't actually have anyone to take care of technology issues, it, it occurred to me that maybe his role wasn't as client-facing you know, and revenue-generating as I thought it was. And that's the aha that sometimes, you know, and we know with COVID has changed things, but we get back to business lunches and dinners, sometimes you can find out very valuable information with a random phone call that might never have occurred if we hadn't had lunch that day. And so how did the deal kind of progress from there? Yeah, so from there, as we, we talked more about their investment process and what their goals were, and we met some of their staff, it became clear that not only did the senior partner, the majority owner, want to sell, he wanted to have uh, a large chunk of money up front, but he basically wanted me to bring on that junior partner in the same status. And I had to explain to him that if I'm going to buy his firm, that junior partner may have had a certain status at his firm, but my firm was much larger, had a few more moving parts, and therefore I couldn't promise him that his junior partner would have the same status at the new firm. Uh, and that's when the deal started to fall apart because in the end, uh, again, I wanted somebody who was more client-facing and able to deal day-to-day -day with those clients. And if I really was hiring a technology person, that would be like an employee salary role, which is important. Don't get me wrong. You need to have the right technology people. But that would not warrant me making a partnership offer to somebody you know, where I'm acquiring their firm and they want to be part of that new venture without even offering any capital, you know, any money or any risk, uh, any skin in the deal, as you say. And when you are going through an acquisition like this, because I assume your global strategy, your long-term plans are to build up your practice and your, your business to a point in time, well, at some point in time, you'll be looking at an exit. And as you're going through these and growth by acquisition, you're looking really for kind of the right fit, both philosophically and culturally. Could you kind of address that a little bit for our audience out there that may be looking to grow through acquisitions? Sure. And that's such a very, very important point about waiting for the right culture or making sure the right culture is there. Uh, because I often say one of my favorite quotes is, you know, the best deals you do are the bad ones that you walk away from. Meaning, if you look at try to force your culture and their culture together, First of all, it never works. Second of all, you actually end up going backwards by trying to, uh, to have the cultures mesh. So, for example, 
if one culture of our firm was more high touch, more client interactive, and the other culture was more, you know, internet based and let's say less face to face, those are two different business models. And if you try to combine them, it never works. So culture eats strategy for lunch is one of my favorite expressions I heard from a well-known uh, advisor. So that's number one. You have to have that. And the strategy has to be, if I'm going to acquire another firm, you know, with those liabilities, you know, with employees and overhead, it has to add some value to my firm that I didn't have before. But if you're bringing on a junior partner, um, that value goes out the door in the form of, you know, compensation sometimes. So, yeah, you have to have the right the right culture and the right strategy. Otherwise, you're you're sort of uh, working against yourself. And this one was very tough. I spent three or four months interviewing them, and it was very tough to walk away from because they had many other components. They had a very large asset base. They had a good investment process. They were only an hour away from my main corporate office. There were a lot of good things about it. But in the end, um, the bad things overrode the good ones. And I was so grateful to be able to take the time and think that I had to walk away. But in a sense, that was the right thing to do. So often I know in talking to a lot of our guests and some of the transactional stories that we have on the podcast here is that when people get so invested in the process and in the due diligence process and it takes months and months and sometimes six, eight, ten months and in your case four or five months that you went through this process of doing your due diligence, going through all the meetings and the digging and review and research and everything, you really do get emotionally attached to the transaction. And it's very easy, especially if there are some other outside considerations, whether it's financial or maybe health or, you know, something else that's going on behind the scenes that's really driving that decision to sell. You get so invested in that process that it's tough to walk away. Did you find it really tough to walk away? I mean, here's a, all these things that you listed out that were beneficial to you. And in a good point, when you write things down on the right and left side of your legal yellow pad, the good and the bad, there were a lot of good things. How difficult was it really to stand back and, and to make that decision to walk away? It is. It's very difficult because as you've said, you're invested with time and money. And I often remember my first accounting course in uh, graduate school when I got my MBA and they taught us about sunk costs, right? Sunk costs are costs that are sunk and should be forgotten. Meaning no matter how much time and effort and energy you put into something, if it still doesn't fit your metric um, or your time frame or whatever, then you do have to walk away. And I think it's probably a good sense if something is painful to walk away from, I actually view that as an as an asset, meaning you're saying, okay, I like a lot of things about this, but there's too many uh, unknowns, or in this case, the junior partner challenge, that really make it um, important to be able to step back and say, do I really want to saddle myself with this? And sure enough, by the way, as often happens, when one door closes, within a year or two, another deal came along that was far better. So we try not to fit on some external timeline or somebody else's time frame. Take the time that you need, but if it's not, you know, meshing with your values, um, it is okay, you know, to push back from the table. But there are so many other deals to do out there now. I realized that people get caught on one instead of backing off and looking at others that might also be appropriate. So, 
If you had to, you know, one or two key sentences, what would be the big takeaway for our audience here today that they could really absorb and take away from what you shared with us in this uh, acquisition story? Yeah. So the first thing is, no matter how much time you've invested in something, time, effort, energy, that doesn't equate to meaning the deal has to happen, or at least not has to happen right away. So don't equate with time, effort, energy with an outcome that has to happen with this particular deal. So that's number one. And number two, that quote I used earlier, the best deals you do sometimes are the ones you walk away from, meaning if you don't take on a bad deal, you don't sit there and take your good resources from your company or your staffing or your energy and try to fix, you know, sort of the leaky ship. Um, we call it, you know, trying to save lost puppies. You don't want to spend your time saving lost puppies because then you take your own firm's direction, you know, and you do a left-hand turn and you're going down the wrong path. So those are two of the things that I think the audience could take away. Well, I think that I've heard that several times in my career, the best deals are the ones that you don't do. So I think that's a good takeaway for our audience. Okay, Tom, jump in and review another type of transaction you've been involved in with our audience here today. Sure. Another one that was more recent um, within the last 18 months was a firm that was approaching uh, a billion dollars in assets. And just to give the audience- That's B with a billion, all right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> B, B for billion. And just to give the audience that might not know the investment business, sort of the tranches- there's sort of three tranches in the investment world. One is firms of a billion dollars and higher. There's only about 750 to 1,000 of those in the entire country. Then there's firms of a billion dollars down to about 500 million of AUM or asset center management. And then there are those like mine that are below 500 million. So this would have been a fascinating one because this was a firm about three times the size of my firm. And normally your intuition might be, well, that can't work you know, because of the size and the scope. But actually, the initial meetings were promising in terms of this particular advisor had already sold his practice to a large financial institution, let's say, 10 years ago. So he was an employee of that company. So he sold it, but he worked there and he knew all the clients. So let me just understand why would he continue to work there? What was the logic and reasoning behind that, especially over a 10-year period of time? Yeah. So at the time, this particular financial institution hadn't developed yet an expertise in the wealth management arena and they were growing. So his firm was one of the first acquisitions that they did. So they were smart enough then to say, we need this person on board to help transition the clients. And it worked out so well, he wanted to stay and they wanted him to stay. So it was a perfect match of he knew the clients, they knew they needed him, and it worked out well for many, many years. Yeah, mostly. And when you look at traditional transactions across the various industries, that episodes that we've shared with our audience here is an owner, a seller, will stay for a year, two, maybe three, but 10 years is a long time. So that's kind of unusual, but I guess there's a real business reason behind it. So what happened next? Yeah. So after he had stayed, by the time I had met him, that 10 years you know, had passed and he noticed that the direction of his parent company, they weren't spending the effort and energy in his line of business anymore. And he realized he was of the age he wanted to exit. So it was time, but he had very close relationship. Um, you know, you can use the term customer, we use the term client, but he had a close relationship with his customers. And he thought, if I'm going to move on into retirement, uh, and actually, he wanted to move to California from Connecticut. 
uh, and I can't blame him uh, for many good reasons. He said, I want to make sure my, my customers or my clients are well taken care of. So he approached the management of this firm and said, I found an advisor that is a very good match for what I do, you know, for my own clients. So my skill set and his skill set almost exactly aligned. And that obviously is very, very important when you're trying to transition these relationships. So, uh, so that was the initial meeting where he suggested to management, and this is a big bureaucracy, but you know, they know how to manage companies. And he said, this is a person you should really think about you know, in terms of um, my transition, my exiting the business, because if you don't have the right party, then my clients, my customers won't be happy and they won't stay when, when I'm no longer here and I moved to California and I'm no longer in Connecticut. Well, I don't know how this story is really going to turn out, but my guess is is that you have a large financial institution. They have corporate managers, uh, a lot of which have not been down in the trenches, and especially in a business they don't understand, which is the wealth management business, and they really recruited and acquired companies that had that expertise. They probably really didn't understand it. And my guess is, is that the pinheads in the C-suite or upper management really discounted what their employee investment advisor was telling them. So how did the transaction roll out? Well, bingo, you nailed it. Uh, and exact, exactly as you stated, what happened was the culture didn't appreciate you know, his recommendation and thought they knew better. Even though they had never met the clients, they didn't know who they were. They thought, you know, we're in management, we're in the C-suite, we know better. And they passed on that. And uh, he was very frustrated because he said, you really need to find somebody who's going to match the things that I offered these people. He said, I've known them for 20, 30 years. And sure enough, I heard later on that many of them had uh, had left. I imagine they brought in some MBA corporate type that took over his role once he exited. And that probably didn't go very well, did it? Yeah, it didn't go well. And I by then, of course, I wasn't involved in the discussions, but I'd heard to the grapevine. And I think the big takeaway was, number one, you know, in any business, as you know, often they're based on relationships, you know, customers, clients, long-term vendors. And I think that sometimes big bureaucracies don't value those relationships as strong as they should. Uh, and especially now during COVID, you know, where people have a lot of meetings in Zoom. So I think that was a big learning point for them. Uh, he and I knew that because we both are in the trenches every day, you know, providing advice and and holding clients' hands. But in the end, um, so there was a clash of culture, clearly. There was a culture clash. And in the end, um, there was also a, a clear difference of vision. You know, the corporate bureaucracy wanted to go one way, and the entrepreneur who had become the employee wanted to go a different direction. What would be, for those listening in, the big key takeaway from your transaction here that uh, sounds like you didn't do and you passed and he went and eventually left the institution that he was working for and uh, you went on and pursued other strategic acquisitions. What would be the big takeaway here? Yeah. Well, number one, whenever there's a big, you know, corporate owner uh, of any business, you know, whether it's technology, uh, plumbing, you name it. Just keep in mind that the corporate owner, the bigger entity may, not always, may have a very different view because they write the checks, you know, may have a different view of that smaller division, let's say that smaller entity. So that was a, a takeaway for me, number one. But number two, when you're talking to someone, um, and, and this person was very clear up front, he was no longer the owner, but whenever you're talking to somebody 
who's either a minority partner or not the owner. Um, also make sure you don't spend too much time because I spent a few months early on thinking that this person had more sway over corporate management. Um, they certainly led me to believe that. And so my lesson there was not that you shouldn't begin maybe at the lower level, but the sooner you meet the owners and the sooner you can sit down with them and look them eye to eye, the better, because you'll get the message right from them. So there was this sort of interplay of what this person wanted to have happen, but he wasn't in charge. And clearly the people in charge had a different view. So that would be a warning not to spend too much time in the beginning on people who don't have uh, don't write the checks and they're not the majority owner. Well, for those of us that have gone through selling your business and the type of things that you look at, one of the things that I think is obvious from your story that's kind of universal, regardless of the type of business that you have and that you will be selling and trying to position for sale is really the culture of the business. When you're selling something that you've spent a career building, you're selling, you know, decades of your hard work and you understand the customers and you want to make sure either the person or the company that is acquiring the business, you know, has a similar philosophy and culture and wants to continue that culture or they're not going to be able to keep the business. And especially if there's an earnout or something like that available or, you know, part of the terms that are going to be negotiated, that becomes, you know, a lot more important. Another thing I think, you know, for those that have high customer concentration, and this is really something that I think is applicable here, is that generally when there's a higher customer concentration, when you are transitioning out of the business and selling it, you're probably going to be asked to stay on to take care of those customers to make sure that they don't leave. Uh, and that may be an employment agreement for one, two, three years, uh, you know, to assist with that transition until those customers feel comfortable. But probably a better strategy on top of that is if you have a high customer concentration is to start working on it well in advance of the time that you're planning to exit the business and get that customer concentration down to the 10, 15, 20% level versus if it's much higher than that, maybe 30, 40 or even higher percentage of that. And so I think that your story that you shared here really involves that key person having all those client relationships or customer relationships. You just want to make sure that they're tied to the company and not that individual person. All right, Tom, why don't we jump over and talk about a couple of transactions you've been involved in that kind of went well and in some cases maybe uh, really well? Yes. Well, my first transaction years ago uh, was a very interesting one. Uh, a very dynamic person was a former um, engineer at uh, Union Carbide and had retired from that business. For those of us that do remember, there was that famous uh, tragic but sad, the uh, Bhopal, India um, gas explosion, where that caused you know a lot of unintended damage. As, as I recall, that was like hundreds of not thousands of people died, right? Because it was, a, it was lethal gas or something in the factory or the train that exploded. Yes, it was a really tragic occurrence. And this was probably the first of an era, you know, well before the Exxon Valdez and well before these other things. This was the first of a corporation, you know, acknowledging, um, you know, their, their guilt or their involvement. But at the time I met this person, they had retired from, uh, from Union Carbide after that. Well, retired, meaning he was because of that 
incident, his division or whatever, he was kind of downsized. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, he wasn't directly related to that. But I think in the corporate culture, it caused a downsizing of a lot of people after that incident. I got it. And uh, he was one of many, from my understanding. Um, And he used that, though, to his credit as a, a launching point to become an enrolled agent. An enrolled agent, for those that may not be familiar with that term, is really a tax expert in dealing with the IRS and tax issues, right? Yes. And so this enrolled agent, you know, built up um, a very successful practice of clients that, you know, that paid him to do their taxes. And after several years of that, this is probably the late 80s, early 90s, when he realized, again, another trend was the growth of the asset management business, you know, financial planning, wealth management. And he realized that he could then get some other credentials, which he did, and then start giving financial advice properly licensed to these clients. And he realized that he couldn't be juggling two practices at once. So he sold the enrolled agency practice to a partner who did nothing but the taxes. And then he worked with those same clients as wealth management people since he did know them. You know, he knew their tax situation. And by the way, that was very early on in the 90s. Today, it's more common. There are firms that will both do your taxes and manage your money. Um, I focus on just the uh, money management. But anyway, he realized that he had this other nice asset base growing, which is called the wealth management business. So at the time that I met him, he had already migrated from engineer to entrepreneur and the enrolled agent, all the way to wealth advisor. And so when I first met him, knowing that he was so entrepreneurial, I said, what would motivate you, you know, to want to sell or get out? Because you seem to like to start new companies or new things every few years. And he chuckled, but he told me a really important story. He had a good friend of his in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, many years ago, who passed away unexpectedly, who was in the wealth management business. And this person's wife wanted to come into the office to collect the files. And she wasn't allowed in, not because they were being mean, because she didn't have any licenses. And this particular business is heavily licensed and regulated. And so for clarification, to be a wealth manager or deal in securities, there are a number of federal licenses as well as state licenses that you have to get through exams and you know testing as well as experience a lot of times to be able to handle other people's money. And she didn't have any of that, right? Right. She did not have in that, nor did she know that that was a requirement for her to get any value of her husband's company. So what happened was when she went to the office to get the files, not in a bad way, but just to say, this is something I want to help you know, my husband's clients, they wouldn't let her in. And all those clients were then dispersed among the other advisors in the firm. And she got literally no value, zero value for what should have been you know, a big payday for her. So that became a tragic story. Yeah. The lifetime of work gone. Gone. Because of <laughs> not not a lot of planning in that particular situation. So why was this so important as he was relating this story to you? Why was he sharing this story with you? Right. So it became the motivator for, for this gentleman to say, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I want to make sure my wife and I, you know, get the full value of my practice. All right. So he knew, and that became literally Uh, One of the reasons why he said he was in his early 70s at the time, he said, I'm not going to wait five years. I want this deal done, you know, within a year or so if you're the right buyer. So that is very important for your audience, too, is that if you have a legitimate motivating factor, you know, on the seller side, 
that's really important. You don't want to rush the deal because of it, but it's very important that they have something else in life they want to do or get to or a goal to reach. And this was clearly top of mind for him. So that was the motivation behind him entering in discussions with you to work out some sort of transaction where you would eventually take over his firm. What you're really saying is that you didn't write the check and the next day he was gone. No, absolutely not. In fact, he was so involved with his clients in a good way, we ended up doing a down payment and an earnout where he stayed on um, for about two years of the five-year earnout. He didn't have to stay on two years. He just wanted to. And what he did is he spent more and more of his time away from Connecticut with his wife, you know, traveling. And then at the end of the second year, he really was pretty much out of the business. And I told him, uh, you can stay six months or two years, whatever you want to do. And by that time, you know, at the end of the two years. So the earnout continued for three years after that. But the great success story here was that, number one, it worked out great for both of us because we I wasn't forcing him out. I wanted him to go at his own timetable. Number two, when at the end of the five years, when we looked at the deal, we realized he had made more money than he initially expected to. In other words, his final sales price was about 30% higher. But because it was an earnout, that also meant that I made more money than I anticipated. So this was a win-win that his patience and his timing and motivation, plus my ability to take on those clients with my team, worked out really well. And in the end, uh, it, that practice became one of my biggest revenue generators, even up to this day. Let's rewind here and chat a little bit about why he got 30% more than the sales price at the time of the execution of the documents when the deal became an acquisition on your side. Talk a little bit about how that earnout was structured because so often the stories that we have shared here on the podcast are earnouts that don't work out that well because the buyer, either intentionally or on purpose, structure earnouts that are very difficult to achieve. And so often you'll hear the advice given by exit advisors and other people that do consulting in the business acquisition space is that once you sell a business and you sell it for $5 million or whatever the sales price is, that's what you expect. And even if there's another million on top of that in an earnout, really don't expect it. If you get it, it's just cherry on the top of the cake, you know. Uh, but in this particular situation, it's kind of the flip side of that. So why don't you talk a little bit about why the earnout was more and why that earnout turned out well for him and for the seller? Sure. So two things, and and we know you could do a whole separate podcast on just deal structure. I'm sure I could do ten podcasts on that. But go ahead. Right, but it'll change too. You know, with the new tax law and the new administration. But yes, I think you'll find that number one, if the earnout is structured right, the way we did it was it wasn't just growth of the business. A lot of people misinterpret the earnout to be like this, you know, hockey stick projection where it has to take off. We built it on current revenue and the growth of that revenue. So that meant the earnout on day one was a sharing of the current revenue. We didn't have to hit certain targets for it to work because if we base it on current revenue, that gave him an incentive when he stayed on those two years to introduce me to more potential clients. And that was the goal. So that way, in the time period that he was staying on board, we met other people, we brought on their accounts, their assets as well, 
And that was built in the agreement. So I did incentivize him if he wanted to stay on that the way to make it work was to bring on more revenue through new potential clients. And that's how we structured that deal. Whereas if he chose not to, that's fine too. There wouldn't have been a penalty. He just wouldn't have made as much money if he stayed with the original firm only. That is kind of an innovative twist here because so often earnouts are really tied to increases in revenue, not so much on existing revenue. The incentive is to grow the business. And he had that incentive, but it was really tied to his existing revenue, regardless if the if the business really stayed flat for that period of time, he would have still gotten the increased in revenue. Of course, the flip side of that coin is if revenue had gone down, he wouldn't have earned that earnout either. So Correct. I, I would imagine that one of the things he was looking at and probably you were looking at too was getting back to this issue of culture and philosophy again, is that that fit is really important. So you don't lose clients over a different operating modus operandi once you take over a company. It has to be pretty consistent. Absolutely. In fact, again, one of the big screens that I would look for early on when I'm looking to meet a potential seller is does the culture and strategy and what that firm has done, does it doesn't have to exactly match, you know, what I do, or in this case for your listeners, what they do, but there better be a lot of overlap, right? Because in the end, those, those persons, customers or clients are expecting a certain service model when the transition is done. And if the service model is vastly different than what they're used to, um, that can be a real shocker. And so therefore, you got to really make sure, for example, he was an engineer by trade. I was an MBA in finance. We're numbers guys. We knew what we were looking for as a result of a good deal. But we also looked at, you know, what were some of the hiccups that might happen along the way? For example, were his out-of-state clients that couldn't meet us in person, would they transfer over with just a phone call, which they did. So there were a few hiccups along the way, but we worked through them. And the main goal was that he felt at the end when his customers or clients saw that he was happy because he saw them in town a lot, um, they knew that he was happy. And therefore, that translated a lot of goodwill uh, for me and that firm you know, as we grew it over the years. So as you look about something that our audience could take away from your story here, give us a couple of high points that might resonate with our audience. Sure. Number one, if somebody, uh, if you're looking to, let's say, buy a certain uh, practice or valuation of a certain company, to really find out what is the motivation of the seller. Um, again, it can be important from that seller said, I want to spend more time with my wife and family. I want to spend time with the grandkids. That's great. But try to find what their specific motivation is because in general, I can save your listeners a lot of headache. A lot of people will quote shop the market just to see what their company is worth, but they don't really have any interest in selling it. You want to vet those people or or get them out of your sales filter right away because they're going to waste your time and they might even take some of your great intellectual property and, and share it with somebody else. So be really careful. What is the motivating reason for the seller to want to exit the business? Usually, by the way, it's not money. It typically could be health. It could be we want to move to Florida, you know, for from New England. But whatever it is, it should be a pretty high motivating reason. That's number one. The second takeaway is make sure, again, what you offer, what your firm is offering, has a substantial similarity to what they may be expecting. Um, that was a big part of it. I think a third part, too, was this particular man wanted me to own um, or have office space in the very town that uh, that I was going to you know, buy his practice in. 
And that was a requirement at closing, but I had no problem with that. It turned out best decision I ever made was opening this satellite office uh, downstate because number one, it gave those clients a sense of permanence. Like he's going to be here a while because he committed to you know a five-year lease. But number two, it ended up being a great launching point for referrals and new business in that particular area. So that became another strategic byproduct. Just out of curiosity, I'm sure you weren't the only company he was talking to. I'm just curious if you know, maybe you don't know, but did the other possible acquirers of his company offer to open up an office in that location? Yeah, you know, actually, most of them didn't, ironically. In fact, he was getting offers as far away from from Connecticut as California. He had one firm said, we'll just write you a check. And, you know, him being sort of a typical Yankee, he he said to them, well, I'm not in it for the money. And they were saying, we'll just write you a, a check to buy you out completely. But he said, I want someone to be here and take care of my clients. So yeah, I think I was the only one. There was a local advisor that he interviewed, but that person didn't have the infrastructure, the staffing, the technology and all to really take on what he thought would be an important acquisition. So you're right. Other than the local advisor who was already there by default, none of the other firms really wanted, they just wanted the client base. They didn't want to make any established presence in that area. I'm going to put on the hat to, you know, someone that's selling their business. I mean, you're coming from this from a perspective of acquiring businesses, which is useful because you really want to understand the mindset of what an acquirer is looking for so you can meet their expectations. So you being an acquirer, in this case, in the wealth management field, and but so many of the things you're talking about really are universal in, in nature. But if I'm a buyer and I'm listening to this uh, episode and you sharing these stories about your acquisitions, one of the things that I think is really intriguing that when you are selling your business as a, a business owner, an entrepreneur, you're looking at these different sellers and you have to know that these sellers are looking at you and trying to figure out why is he selling and am i going to invest a lot of time in due diligence only to find out that he's not serious about selling and so i think you need to really communicate and uh, be transparent on the reasons for your sale and uh, so that they can validate that and so that you can get good buyers to the table that are willing to invest the time and resources into do, doing due diligence because they know you're serious about selling. And you mentioned something I think very key here is that a lot of buyers go to market just to test the waters. They really want to see what their business is worth. They really have no intention of selling and they waste a lot of time of uh, people that are looking to buy businesses. And there's a lot of other ways to understand what the value of your business is by hooking up with the right mergers and acquisition or business broker advisors uh, that can tell you what your business is worth at a fair market value. And they can give you a really good idea of that. But, you know, going to market just to test the market is probably not a great strategy and is not really beneficial to you as a seller of the business and certainly is not beneficial for those that are looking at your business. If they even get a whiff that that's what you're doing, you're not really going to get a real indication of what your business is worth. So that's my little soapbox uh, speech for today. So uh, we're not here to listen to me. We're here to listen to you, Tom. So let's get back to your stories. Uh, why don't you uh, share one more transaction with us here today? And that really went well for you and, and for the people that you dealt with. Sure. Uh, this one, I, I like to call it small can become big. Uh, that was my title. But 
initially this was an advisor that had a goal here was to exit the business and he was actually running a separate firm at the same time. So he was running sort of a, a wealth management firm, but he was also a headhunter. And by running two firms at the same time, he was juggling his time, his effort, and he realized uh, he can't be, um, like I said, like a hunter chasing two rabbits. A famous Japanese proverb is, they say a hunter chasing two rabbits catches neither one. So again, for your listeners, you know, it's not that you shouldn't interview many candidates, don't get me wrong, but if you're trying to split your time, and this happens even in big conglomerates, you know, if you study the case histories of these big Fortune 500 firms that had too many moving parts, it's the same thing. Well, this individual had a wealth management practice and he realized the clients were outgrowing his capabilities. He couldn't offer them the services and things they needed. So to his credit, he recognized that. He met my team and I really liked our culture, but, but more critical to the story was he also had a game plan of what he would do the day after closing. So his game plan was he would spend more time building up his headhunting business. That was where the real revenue generator, and that had nothing to do with the investment business. So for me, early on, that was a really good indicator. That was what I call a green light indicator, that he wasn't just selling because he was bored. He wasn't selling because the clients were leaving him. He was actually saying, I want to get ahead of the game, ahead of the picture here, and sell before my clients realize that I can't offer the services they need. So he got the maximum value. But at the same time, he knew right away, the day after closing, he devote full energies to his other business. So that was a very good indicator. A second indicator early on was when he came up uh, to meet the team, he had no problem signing a confidentiality agreement right away. And we didn't talk about this earlier. But early on, if you really want to have the trust of the person that you're dealing with, we often have them and we signed basically a mirror image confidentiality agreement, what's called a CA. And what that says is, within reason, you can share things about your company. I can share things about mine. We have that legal protection that says neither one of us will violate that. you know. And that's important. So we didn't cover that. But that's a document that many people maybe aren't used to. But I would throw that out there to your audience. In certain industries, it can be very valuable. And this individual was willing to sign one right away, which gave me a very indica a good indicator that he was serious about you know, moving to the next step. So that was a big part of it too. So as uh, this transaction proceeded, and I assume you went ahead and acquired the company, I'm kind of curious, you said small becomes big. Obviously, this wasn't a gigantic, like the billion dollar transaction we talked about a little bit earlier, when you were looking at uh, possibly acquiring a firm, you know, multiple times the size of yours, this was a smaller acquisition for you. So why the title, small can become big? What's the nugget that you haven't shared with us yet? Yeah, so we can call it the diamond in the rough or you know, the unexpected uh, benefit. So one of the smaller clients of this firm that we met, um, who on the, on the look of it, you know, if you look by account value or net worth, we often, and I've done this in my career too, so I'm not alone. We've often judged people, you know, incorrectly, I think, even in the wealth management business, you know, by the size of the account or the size of net worth. This particular individual had a very small net worth. Uh, they were more into charity um, and, uh, and doing um, work in Africa and things like that. But having met this individual, turns out they were part of a very large family, but the family didn't come along with a transaction. Only this individual did. And again, she did a lot of charity work, but the large family, it turns out, 
had a very big transaction that happened a couple of years later where they sold some very profitable businesses. But the point was having met this individual when she didn't need a lot of help, but we gave her all the advice and guidance, got to meet other family members you know, within that community. And it turns out those became some of the biggest clients of my firm because ultimately that small transaction of that small firm and then a small individual within the firm over time led me to this other larger transaction. And again, it's nothing I could have predicted. I'm not going to claim I would have known, but it was a great reminder to me. uh, And that's why when I wrote the book, The Zen of Business Acquisition, so I kind of have an Eastern philosophy in that book, is that we can sometimes prejudge something, you know, without taking the time to think about it. And since that time, I have had a couple of other, other smaller acquisitions that turned out with that same philosophy, that small became bigger, maybe not as big as this one. So that might be something to pass on to your audience that people sometimes just look away from a deal that's too small without looking at some of the internal components that could lead to something bigger. So just out of curiosity, you say this small client that didn't have a lot of network, but took you to other members of her family that did, did they really become either your biggest or one of your top three clients in, in, as far as size? They became one of the top 10 of the firm. Okay. And if you want to talk about capabilities, this is even something more for the audience. Not only did they become one of the top 10, because it was a complex transaction when they sold their business, I had to get involved with attorneys and CPAs. And I had to learn a skill set different from the one that I grew up with because I came from the Arthur Anderson Accenture world. That's where I started my career as a consultant. So in a good way, we call this you know, extra capabilities. So I built the capabilities of myself and my firm by having to deal with a new layer of complexity. And again, nothing I could have predicted in the beginning, but boy, did I learn a lot from that. And I've taken that particular uh, lesson and now I've been able to apply it to other areas of my practice. So small becomes big just became sort of a takeaway for that. So in this particular transaction, I guess really one of the takeaways here is that as you're looking and growing your business to position it for exit, I guess client relationships and really meeting the mission of your company, whatever that mission is for different people that are listening in, really fulfill the mission to those small clients as well that that can turn out to be bigger. Uh, Would there be another takeaway from this? Yeah, I think the other part um, early on became... When, again, when the owner gives a clear signal that they're ready, you know, ready to move on, um, that's an important message for me, you know, when someone has another game plan. And I think the other part about this uh, small becomes big is the fact that this particular, I like it when an advisor or a person recognizes the limit, the ceiling of their skill set. So I I view that as a priority when someone recognizes, hey, I've, I've taken this firm as far as I can take it. I now have to you know, sell it to extract the value. Otherwise, I'm going to lose the value if I hang on too long. To me, for all of us, that's a very bright individual that can take that philosophy, which is they set their ego aside and they realize for the betterment of their clients or customers, they really need to have a, a more qualified entity take it over. So that, was, to me, was another example of a green light where I really thought, okay, this person really is being very big picture, um, very forward thinking. Um, in this process. And I think that goes along with the prior transaction you talked about as a buyer, 
You want to be committed to the sale as long as you get the right buyer, of course, but you really want to telegraph or, as you say, give that green light flashing there that, you know, I'm serious. These are the reasons I'm selling and those reasons are real. Well, Tom, this has been great. Uh, you certainly bring different orientation to many of the guests that we've had here on the podcast that are talking about advisors and M&A specialists and business brokers that uh, are guests on our podcast here when they're talking about actual deals and working with sellers and things that sellers can do, business owners that are getting ready to exit their business. Uh, but you're bringing a little bit different orientation because you are a buyer, you're an acquirer, you're growing through acquisitions and you're sharing with our audience here really what uh, a buyer needs to do to position their business for sale and how they need to approach this. So this has been a, a very enjoyable and I think beneficial uh, discussion here and I think our audience will find it the same. So Tom, if someone wanted to reach out and uh, get a hold of you, how would they do that, what would be the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Sure, there's several ways. One would be on Amazon. You know, the uh, the Zen of Business Acquisitions is is the book by Tom Hine, you know, H-I-N-E. They could look me up that way. There's an audio book coming out soon, so they could listen to it um, on, uh, on Audible or something like that. Also, my firm in Connecticut, uh, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, but it would be my email is Tom Hine, T-O-M-H-I-N-E, at C-A-P- I-T-A-L-W-M.com. So it stands for Tom Heine Capital Wealth Management.com, but we shortened it. So those are two quick ways they could reach us. And um, yeah, I look forward to any feedback and I know we can share a lot of good information with your audience. All right. Well, Tom, thank you for being with us here today. Uh, this is Marvin L. Storm with the Business Exit Stories podcast, and we'll see you on our next episode. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Business Exit Stories podcast. For more information or to reach out to today's guest, visit www.businessexitstories.com for more details. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast from your favorite podcasting platforms. And remember, maximizing business value at the time of exit doesn't happen magically. It takes planning.